Well, tis the season for getting together, which is really convenient because that's what we're talking about this morning in our sermon time. And February 14th, I hope, that, I hope that it was everything that you imagined it to be, whatever that might be. I know this, that there were probably a lot of really disappointed people on February 14th. There were others who were um, ecstatic and their, you know, every expectation was blown away. And there are others that were like, what was February 14th? You know, I mean, there's just a, the whole gamut there. It's really simple as kids, right? As kids, you just write out 32 little names. You make sure everyone gets one. You pass them out. And you go to recess, right? And then from there on, every year it gets increasingly more complex, it seems. The bottom line with February 14th is this. It's really, it's really exactly the same as every day of the year in this regard. Every single person you come across longs to love and longs to be loved in return. We are designed to connect with other people. Now, I know what some of you guys are thinking. You're like, this is gold. I mean, this is going to save me some money next next Valentine's Day. Because I'm just going to write a card and say, honey, every day is Valentine's Day with us. Now, here's the challenge with that. You better treat your woman like every day is Valentine's Day. So, I promise you, you know, financially, that's not going to work out well. But... Jot it down if you want. So think about the ways you connect. We connect in love. We connect in relationship and family. We connect in business relationships, right? We connect in in neighborhoods. We connect in hobbies. Just in life, we're designed to connect, and we long to connect, and we're often frustrated when we don't connect with people. We've We've been in a series looking at the church and just saying, what is the church? What are we doing here? Why did we get up today and... You know, and put ourselves together and, and come here. The sun finally came out. First service, the sun wasn't out. But here the sun's out. We could be doing, you know, other things. Why are we here? What are we gathered to do here? And we're looking at that. Uh, here's a few of the biblical metaphors that we've looked at, that the church is a community. What does it look like for biblical community? How does that differ from other kinds of things? We talked about family and some of the, the metaphors the Bible uses. We also talked about the idea that the church is a living organism. So that really affects how we, um, how we structure things, how we grow um, what that all looks like, how we're uh, connected to one another. Glenn Miller came and shared about Zimbabwe and just the fact that what we're doing here um, didn't come around in the last 10 years. We didn't happen upon something. This is an old, old story that we're connected to, and it's a worldwide story, and it's so powerful. Every time I'm in here singing with you and, and being together at church is that there are people around the globe right now celebrating the risen Jesus Christ, and they're worshiping him as God in in contexts that are so different than, than ours right here. They don't have conditioned air. They're not necessarily on a, on a chair the same way. Uh, I've, I've pulled a lot of kind of gothic and, and impressive architecture uh, all through Europe and stuff for a lot of the images for this series. Um, and we don't worship in, in that kind of environment, there, but there are people who are worshiping there. And finally, the last two weeks, we've just talked about the idea that the church should be so much more than just a school, than just a place to learn stuff. But it certainly shouldn't be anything less than that. And that God has chosen to pass on his truth through a written word so that the common people, so everyone has access to his truth. And we're to grow in the knowledge of what it means to walk like Jesus Christ did. And so through the ages, that has spurred the impulse to to start up schools and universities and libraries. It's caused people to give their life to help a native group have a written language so that they can then translate the Bible into their language just for the purpose of, of communicating God's truth to them. So through the ages, it's, it's phenomenal what kind of things and progress has gone on in our culture 
because of the impulse driven to say we need to get the message out that God's given to us. So the fact that we're a learning center um, is, is, a, is a huge thing. And then today we're just looking at the idea that, that the church is networked, that the, that the church has a collective identity that's really important to get clear on what that is and what that isn't. One of the things we're not going to talk about today, it's a, it's a whole sermon in and of itself, but that's how does our church network and connect with other churches? How should we do that? And some of you know that for six weeks we've been, we've been um, getting some specialized training just in how to share our faith with Tim Wright. It's been an awesome thing. We just finished up uh, week six this last Wednesday night, and we partnered with three other churches. So here's four churches that are recognizing we're a part of the church that Jesus Christ established here in the South Bay, and we're concerned about this city. We want to win this city for Christ, and we're going to link arms together and, and partner with that. And we're very intentional about who we linked with and in some directions with. Here's the big idea. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. The church is to be together in identity, in life, and in mission. Now, it's to be together in some other things, for sure, but I just kind of whittled it down to these three things because we've only got about 40 minutes together. The mission part is really going to be saved primarily for next week. We'll, we'll look at that next week. But I want, to, I want to just share some thoughts from Scripture about this. Now, what does the word network make you think of? Uh, we, we live in a valley where some of you this morning, every time you hear the word network, you're going to have to resist the urge to reach for a business card and, like, thrust it at someone. Because you're like, network? I'm all over that. Hey, how you, and you're just, you just have this urge. Like, I love that. You know, I, I love networking with people. And my business, you know, thrives on that. I have to network, right? Some of you are really put off by that. I know. Some of you just feel like, man, any networking of any kind just feels shallow and it feels wrong and it feels like, get out of my face. So, so the word network, you know, has some different things. Some of you are thinking social network right now, right? And you're like, I've been on the fence with LinkedIn. I'm not sure if I'm going to go that direction, but all my buddies are, and I don't want to be the last one out. And, you know, Facebook used to be cool last week, and now it's not. I mean, you know, so network is huge in, in this area. Obviously, computer networks and, th- you know, so your brain might go somewhere with networks. Here's my question to you. Think about the different networks that you're a part of, whether it be a family. A family is a basic network, right? A church is a network. A company is a network. Um, you know, a hobby or, or some group that you might be a part of. Those are all, those are all networks. Now, here are some questions. What are they built on? What makes them stick? How strong are your networks? And I bet for you, like for me, there's some that would be really, really strong and others that would be kind of weaker. And it would be like, eh, it wouldn't take much to break me off from that group. But this group over here, they're really strong. Jesus had a completely different idea about network. Look at the screen. He said this, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, he's talking to fishermen, so he's kind of contextualizing things here. But a beautiful, simple call that he issued to people. Do you notice that Jesus went around making demands of people like a Lord and Savior should, rather than just a good teacher who was kind of a carpenter and a nice guy? He made demands of people. Leave your place of business and follow me. Guess what? Some people did. Others ended up stringing upon the cross as heresy and blasphemy that he would make those demands. But make no mistake, Jesus made demands and knew he was here on a mission. And he's passing it on to these guys saying, you follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He's giving them their command to follow and their calling for the rest of their life. Man, your life is going to be turned on its head of what you're fishing for, of what you're all about. And who's doing the work? I will make you fishers of men. Man, there's so much in that, in that one little message. In fact, one of the core messages this morning is this. Those who take Jesus at his word. And by, and by that, what I mean is this. They don't nod and go, oh, that was a good sermon, Jesus. 
They take him at his word, and you know it because of this. They followed and they fished. If you follow and you fish, the way Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, that creates a bond with others who have followed and are fishing that is stronger and deeper and more permanent than blood or than business or than hobby or than just circumstance and living in a neighborhood ever could. That's what, I, that's what I'm going to throw out to you today and show you from Scripture why I would get there. Now, it's important to be clear on the word church. There was some breaking news this week that the Pope resigned due to some health things. And what that does is all of a sudden it thrusts into the national attention all kinds of articles written about the church and all kinds of things written and all that. So I was just kind of fascinated reading some of this. And, and it dawns on me, especially as I talk to people throughout any given week, that there is a lot of different opinions about what the church is. And it's really clear to keep coming back to talk about what we mean by church. What does the Bible mean by church? That's why we're doing a whole series on it, in fact. As you discuss church with someone and you have varying opinions, this ought to raise up in your mind if it doesn't raise up in the conversation. Are we the same as other churches? Are we different from other churches? Should we be the same as other churches? Should we be different? The big question as you start diving into all this is this. Who says? Who says we should be this way or that way? Who says we should organize this way or that way? Who says we should have this belief or that belief? That's a really important question. It's the question of authority. Where does the authority lie, right? So as I'm reading articles, I, something keeps popping up in my mind, and it's this. The church, capital C, the church is not the savior of us. The church is not the authority of us. The church is not the hope that we have. Jesus is. Now, to read some of the articles, it looks like people have placed their lives under the authority exclusively of a church. It seems as if people have placed their hope and they're building it on a church. It seems almost as if people are worshiping a church and belonging to that church and not Jesus who died for them. We at Neighborhood Bible Church, and I say we collectively, I recognize there are some of you in here who may say, that's not me. But I would just say we collectively as a church have placed our hope in Jesus Christ. And the authority on who says how church should be run and what we're doing here and how we're to orient our lives and raise up our children and spend our money and vote and all of that, it will look varied in this room, I promise you that. But the authority that we keep coming back to is the Word of God because the Word of God is the book that God wrote. And we've come to trust that. So that's our authority, not the church. Now, that said, it's really important to come up with a definition of what the local church is. This is a group out of, um, out of the Pacific Northwest in Seattle. They came up with a great definition. They stole it from the Bible, which if you're going to plagiarize, plagiarize the Bible. It's a good place to do it. They basically grabbed several ideas that I see as really scriptural. There's tons in this, in this one definition. And this definition, uh, if you come to our membership class or if you've been through our membership class, you see we've taught through this. This is an important part of what, what we say when we, when we say church. So let me just read it for you. It says this. A local church is a community of regenerated believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord in obedience to the Scripture. 
They organize under qualified leadership, gather regularly for preaching and worship, observe the biblical sacraments of baptism and communion, are unified by the Spirit, are disciplined for holiness, and scattered to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission as missionaries to the world for God's glory and their joy. That's a lot. Some of you, I'll just put you at ease. We're not going to ask you to memorize it. I haven't memorized it, okay? That's not the holy scripture that we need to memorize. Uh, that's just someone who's kind of compiled some things. But it's a great definition of a local church. And it's what we mean by the local church. Maybe not in its entirety, but it's a pretty good job. Now, I want to highlight, for the sake of today's topic, I just want to highlight a few words in here to just show you the togetherness that is woven through all of Scripture. Okay? Here it is. Look at the word community. Look at the word organize. Gather regularly. Baptism and communion, which are communal events. And then unified by the Spirit. You could go on to say that, that others of these, but these are blatant, explicit words that talk about us being networked, being together in something. Do you see that? I mean, woven through this definition, no one stood up and goes, what? I, that doesn't make any sense as a church definition. We all see that, and, and you go, yeah, I, 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 I get that. And yet, woven in here is all this togetherness. The church is made up of individuals, but is unified in their identity, their life, and their mission. All right, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Let me read it. You follow along. These two verses are our text today. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let me give you three bullet points, kind of teaching points on this passage uh, before we move on. First of all, notice in, in the ESV, it translates verse 9 this. It says, but you. But you indicates this, that in the context of that, he's contrasting that with something else. If you read a few verses ahead, he's talking about those who aren't part of the nation, who aren't a called out people. He's making a distinction. Just like any membership, think about any family, any nation, and even Costco. Who's in and who's out is really crystal clear, right? It's important you know who whose family you belong to and who's in your family. Nations are a little uptight about who are citizens and who aren't. They don't just kind of go, well, you know, Masomenos, it's close enough, right? Costco. I can get into Costco. I've never tried it, but it might be a fun experiment. I can get into Costco with a library card, I bet. I mean, you go with a mass of people. They're kind of looking, right? But they don't look that carefully. You just kind of flash something up, act like a Costco person, and they'll let you in, right? But when you go to pay, I couldn't pay with it with my library card. Right? Again, I've never tried it, but if you don't have your card, you don't get in. So we make these distinctions all the time in every facet of life, and yet here's what's really a popular notion with churches today. How dare you say someone's in and someone's out? That's so closed-minded, so narrow. I don't know if it's closed-minded, narrow, tolerant, or intolerant. I just know that the scriptures make clear distinction. And I know that in family, in body, I know what members are my body and what members are your body. It's really clear. And at Costco... So if we're going to do it with all these other things, it just makes sense. Listen to John 1, John 1, 12. You can just write this down. 
Here's the dividing line. If I could boil it all down, the dividing line of who's in and who's out is a simple word called belief. John 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Did you catch how that verse started off? But to all. You know what's comparing and contrasting? Those in the verses just before it, which say this. He came to his own, but they didn't receive him. Then it says, but to all who did receive him. Do you see the distinction? Some are in, some are out. He then says this. Once, this is in, in our first Peter passage, verse 10. Once you were not a people, and once you had not received mercy, but now. He comes back to but now a couple of times. What he's highlighting there is this. He's highlighting that there is an event that took place from where you were not a part of God's chosen people, but now you are. You had not received mercy, but now you have. Now, we could extrapolate that if we looked at the rest of the chapter and book of First Peter and the whole of, of Scripture. That is pointing back to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That that's the key. And that you've received it. By God's grace, you've been given eyes to see. You've received that message. You've believed on it. And now you are a chosen people. And now you have received mercy. I bring this up because of this. It's really important that we get clear what we're talking about with the word church. It's really important to, to get through what we are talking about with, with the theme of being in Christ and being a part of that church. If it was true that you are just born into the family of God, which is a popular message, I like, that's an easier message to preach. You would all like me a lot better if every week I just said that. But if it was true that you were just born into it, and everyone's kind of a child of God because we're all created in his image, then he would have said something along the lines of this. You were always a chosen nation. You were always a people of God. And then about mercy, he would say, you've always been under mercy. You were born into it. But he doesn't. He makes this distinction. If all were apart, he would not make the distinction, but he does. And finally, the third bullet point teaching is just this, that we were made a people to proclaim his works. It says that we're, 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 we're called out so we can proclaim his excellencies, so we can sing about, like we've been doing, sing about his mercy and what it means to be a redeemed people. All right, so what does it mean to be together in our identity? I don't know about you, but I love Westerns. I got to go horseback riding yesterday. It's my daughter's birthday. She's into horses. I'm into horses. I came walking. The last part of my horseback ride, I was with Chris Miglio, our, our, uh, our guitarist up here. And we came riding into this thing, and it was kind of like a, um, it's kind of like a road. So the, the, the horse's hooves had the, the cloppity clop on, on town. And I wish I had a cowboy hat because I would have just, I would have tipped my hat to everyone I passed, you know. But I was like cruising in. And every like Western where you just come cruising into town on a horse was flashing through my mind, you know. And I thought I had just conquered the West. I'd really just kind of ridden around in a circle for half an hour. But um, in my mind, it was bigger. Um, but we, we love the idea of the rugged individual going out to conquer something, don't we? I mean, that storyline plays really, really good with me. And our identity as kind of that, you know, you know, I did it my way kind of thing. I mean, that's born in me as an American. It's my right to think that way. There are some cultures that think collectively. I mean, that's just how they think. They, they, they kind of have it from the time they're little that, that the individual, you know, rising up. I've seen this in Australia. The individual rises up. The whole group says, uh-uh, boom, and they pull them back down. There's a more communal identity. I think for us in the West, for the most part, 
We have to have that trained into us. We have to think that way intentionally or be taught that rather than it just comes natural to us. So what does it mean to be together in our identity in Christ? We use all kinds of words about being in Christ, growing in Christ, making sure that you're in Christ. What does that mean? We don't want to leave that as some nebulous spiritual idea like we nod and go, I don't have any idea what that means. But it sure sounds spiritual. I think I'm going to start using that. You know, whatever. And so we say these things without, without knowing what they mean. Um, don't turn there, but just write down. If you're taking notes, write down Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 is a passage I use at almost every wedding. It's, it's an, a phenomenal picture of what it means to be in Christ and in the church and, and a part of the church. And here's how I would summarize it. Just as a man and a woman go to the altar and leave as husband and wife, so you and I meet Christ at the cross and we leave one with his church. There is a reality that happens when we meet Christ at the cross. We're forgiven of our sins. We receive not only forgiveness, but the, but the new man. We, we have just become a part of the church, like it or not. There's a theological reality there. Now, think of all the beautiful theology packed into this metaphor. Think about a bride for a minute. Okay, Some of you hope to be a bride someday. Some of you are brides. Some of you are married to brides, right? Some of you are raising future brides. Think about a bride... And some of these things. As a bride, your vows matter. So church, get this picture. We are the bride of Christ. Not we strive to be the bride of Christ. I hope we're good enough and live a holy life so that we can become the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. If you're a regenerated believer, you are the bride of Christ. Your vows matter. Your exclusive, as a bride, your exclusive devotion to your husband is mandatory. Cheating on him, in this case, with idols, with believing false gospels, with just wandering away from the faith, is forbidden. I mean, that's a given. We, we get this on the, on the human married level. He's making this parallel in Ephesians directly to the church. As a bride, your purity matters. It is gifted by Jesus, but it's guarded by us. Right? We take on his purity, but we're to fight the flesh. We're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. So it's guarded by us. He empowers us. He gifts us with, with, with purity, but we're to guard that and walk in that. And finally, this is probably the best one. As a bride, you are cherished and provided for and doted on by your groom, by your husband. So as we come and gather as a church... I know that some of you have anxieties that you could sit and tell me about for days. And you're stressed out of your mind right now. Some of you have had phenomenal weeks and circumstances are going really, really good for you. Some of you have had terrible weeks and you basically dragged yourself in here at the last minute. You're like, I just got to get to church. It's a really powerful, beautiful gift that as we come in here, I hope this message comes through in what we sing and how we interact with one another in the scriptures that we teach that we can take a deep breath, that we can regain a sense of our collective identity, that we are cherished by our husband, Jesus, that we are doted on, that we are provided for, that no matter what it seems like right now, no matter what circumstance Wednesday brought on this week for you or Friday night or whatever it was, that you're loved and cherished and a part of his bride. There are two sacraments that are left as observances 
that remind us of this love relationship. The first one is baptism. We see this in Scripture. In fact, part of the great commandment is this. Go and baptize people. As you make disciples, baptize them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a little bit like our wedding day. It's a public, physical act that you do, and you are standing up in front of someone, and you are saying this, I have decided to follow Jesus, right? That's what it is. It's our wedding day. It's, it's very similar to two people who come up and get baptized. It's, in some ways, it's an initiation into the physical church, into the visible church that we see. And so it's a, it's a beautiful picture. Now, you don't need to get baptized over and over and over again, just like you don't need to get married over and over again. It's a one-time event, and it's, and it's something that's, that's done publicly. The second sacrament is communion. And you can think of communion like date night, right? So it's really important not to just get married and say, there, I vowed, I committed, I'm going to stay faithful, I love you, we're pretty much done. Let's just keep going on with life, right? Um, you need to keep pursuing your spouse. Can I get an amen on that? Yeah, and some of you who had a lousy February 14th, you're like, amen, preach it, brother, you know, get this message across. You have to keep dating your spouse. It takes effort and work, and sometimes it's really good on date night to just leave the bills alone, to just leave the plans coming up, you know, around the corner alone, to not talk about this side or anything, to look in the eyes of your spouse, and again, just take a deep breath and go, wow, I really do love you. And you really do love me, and that's a phenomenal thing. I love that. Now, back to the hectic you know, thing. That's why it's so important to take that time and, and to do that. Communion is an opportunity for us as Christians to come and, and focus with these two elements in our hand, the bread and the cup, and just say, wow, he died for me. He, he did this for me. He's doting on me. He's showing me in this act how much he loves me. It's not just a nebulous God is love. It's that this is what God, this is what love is. He laid down his life for me. And that's what communion is about. Baptism is your wedding day. Communion is date night where you just regularly come back and keep renewing that vow and keep renewing that cherished relationship. Here's what I know. Sin has always been an enemy poisoning the God-centered community that he designed. Jim Cook and I are reading through a book um, on community. It's called Community, Taking Your Community Groups Off of Life Support. And what Jim and I thought was, how fun it would be to read a book long before our, any of our CGs are on life support. They're not. They're thriving and going really, really well. But we're gleaning some really cool truths from this book. Here's a quote from, from that book. The marginalization of community within the church and culture has not come from conviction. Let me stop there. What that means is this. The fact that we're isolated and struggling with that, that's not based on the fact of this is a good direction to go. We ought to do this. Instead, he puts this out but from apathy and isolation brought on by sin. Isolation is our response to sin. Community is our response to reconciliation. So it's not just that couples drift apart. It's not just that you kind of of wander away from your community group or your church. It's not just that you kind of don't want to be at family gatherings anymore. There's sin involved. And sin puts a wall between us and other people, first and foremost between us and God, so that we can't live in God-centered, God-honoring, God-celebrating communion with our wife, with our best friend, with our boss, with our schoolmate, with our neighbors, without that sin being dealt with. It will always be a struggle. So what does it mean to be together in this life? 
Let me ask you this. Do you like being close to people? Some of the most discerning people in this room would, would, would say this. Give me more context. It depends. It really depends. Um, I don't know if you have been on a flight lately, but sometimes on a flight you begin to realize, I don't like people very much. You know, at the eighth hour, you're like, yeah, right about now. I don't know if I'm a people person. I used to think I was. Uh, some of you have ridden trains in China before. If you ride a train in China, um, you begin to think that airlines, even your cramped economy uh, seat, is really spacious. And you love that personal space that you have. I was on a train in China in 2005 at one point. We were going through the interior. And I was standing like this. And it wasn't because I felt like being awkward for several hours. It's because literally, like several billion of the many billion that live in China were on the train with me. So here I am standing like this, you know, and I couldn't even do this. I mean, it was just really, really wild. And I was trying to, I'm not very claustrophobic, but if I was, it would have been bad. And I was sitting here, and all of a sudden, as I'm sitting here, I felt this. And I, and I, I was able to move my neck, so I kind of looked down, and I see this like 70-something-year-old woman, and she's just looking at me, petting me. <laughs> and so I turn to her, and I go, Limung bao, which means a little more to the left, please. And, no, I'm kidding. I don't speak Chinese, but I wish I did, because that would have been funny. And so she's just petting me, and I couldn't do anything about it. It didn't really bother me that much, but people aren't very hairy in China. And she just had never seen a white guy with that much hair, and she thought, what's he going to do? So she started petting me, and so it was a little bit bizarre. Um, but it, it really is all relative, because people from India feel downright lonely on Chinese trains, because uh, when they travel, it's really packed. Here's what I know in, in, in getting to all of this is this, that just being close to people in proximity doesn't guarantee community. Proximity and community are not the same, right? Uh, when, when you think about the church, there's different metaphors that you can use, and this isn't a biblical one, but it's a good one. Um, I have here a really good example of the idea that proximity is not the same as community. In here, are, my daughter assures me there aren't really 45 pieces in here anymore, because that's our, 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 our household. But there are some number of pieces in here, and this is, this is like some churches. Some churches have a lot of Christians that are in close proximity to one another. They've defined themselves by being in this box, and they, they regularly gather and show up, and they're in close proximity, but they're not in community. Now, there's someone who designed this puzzle with a picture and designed each of the puzzle pieces to all connect, right? And to fit in with one another. And what happens when you put the puzzle, puzzle together? It shows off a picture, right? Shows off this image of what was by design at the very beginning put in place. And so when you see a puzzle and you think about a puzzle, you can think, wow, that's like some of our churches. Here's another interesting thing about it. Some of us wouldn't be that impressed if I put together a 45-piece puzzle, but you'd be really impressed if I put together a 1,000, 2,000, or 5 million-piece puzzle, right? The bigger the number, we're all pretty impressed by it. Here's what I would say. I would say I'd be more impressed with any puzzle that's put together and you see kind of what it was designed for and what it's supposed to be than a whole bunch of pieces in a box not put together. So sometimes we're really impressed by numbers of things. And don't get me wrong, I grew up, found all my foundation and training, met my wife in a massive church. I love the big church done right. And you can have people that gather in close proximity and do a lot of potlucks in a small church and never get connected. You can have a lot of people doing the same thing in a big church and never get connected. 
So this isn't a big church, small church thing. It's just the idea that we can be close to one another without actually being connected. A few other beautiful side points to that. You ever feel like you wonder if you belong at a church and if, and if you know, you're like, God, I know you've given me gifts. I know that I, I must belong in some way, but I'm not like that one over there. Think about puzzle pieces. You ever make a puzzle and have two pieces missing? I mean, you'll turn the house over to get those two pieces. Because you're like, I've invested all this time. Those two pieces become really important near the end at some point, right? No two puzzle pieces look exactly the same. There's all kinds of pictures here that you ought to be thinking of verses that are coming to mind saying, yeah, that kind of is like a church. So proximity and community do not equal the same thing. Here's what I know too. Jesus builds his church. So True community being built up is actually a work of Jesus. It's not brilliant potlucking schemes. It's not, you know, it's not great small group ministry where you're like, we've landed on just how to really connect people. People are not connected because of sin. And so it's, it's really the conviction of the Holy Spirit and Jesus building his church that creates real community. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's really hard to get together and stay together. Just listen to songs on Pandora this week, right? You just listen to songs, you're like, yeah, it is hard to get together. And once you're together, it's hard to stay together. That's just the reality of things. As I thought about how to proceed with this kind of last part of the message in thinking about challenging us and nurturing and growing in us what, what the next step might be for community, um, I could give you all the benefits. I could talk about all these things. But here's what I know. To, to offer to children of God a motivation as to why you should be in community, why you should intentionally be trying to network, to be connected with your brothers and sisters is really, really simple. It's because the Father commanded it. I would be like a sibling coming up to you and just saying, Dad said, but I'm doing this and that. Okay, Dad said. But is it really going to pan out? Dad said. So, so my authority to you is this. Are there benefits to being in community? Of course there are. Incredible benefits. But fundamentally, hear me. Dad said, you're commanded to walk in love with your siblings. You're commanded to be in community. Now, think about this for a minute. Spiritual formation is stunted if you're not in relationship. Some of you in this room thought you were super selfless as a person, and then you got married. And all of a sudden, once you were married, you're like, whoa, I'm not as selfless as I thought. Some of you were under the delusion that you're super patient people. And then God gifted you with children. And you're like, wow, I'm not very patient. On and on and on I could go. You force, you, you have relationship and all of a sudden it starts to squeeze things out of you, right? I think in isolation, all of us would think, yeah, I'm doing okay. I'm forgiven my brother because they haven't wronged me because I haven't seen him because I'm a Unabomber and I live in the woods. You know, I mean, like, it just, it breeds sin and evil. It's not, it's not the normal path. So, think about this. The hurts, habits, and hang-ups that are present in any group. Think small group, church, your work group, your book reading group, whatever you do. The hang-ups, hurts, and habits of any group create the potential for conflict But God's design is to use that conflict to grow us in Christ. 
to be in relationship with people and go, wow, I really need grace, God, just to, just to interact with this person. They're so different than me. They rub me so the wrong way. I'm so impatient with that person. And it drives you back to your knees and say, God, you've been so patient with me. You've been immeasurably more forgiving with me and kind-hearted to me. And then you walk in that as, as you move forward. Our community groups are intended to be Holy Spirit-led laboratories for learning to love one another earnestly and deeply. Romans 12 says this, let your love be sincere or genuine. Now, the answer isn't just in finding a good community group and getting in a good community group. But that's, but that's a way that we commit to one another to do that. So in terms of thinking through why this is so hard, here's the number one reason. You're selfish, and so am I. We're just selfish. That's part of why getting along is really hard. Think about it. If you really put another person's needs above your own, who's the only person you don't get along with? A masochist, right, who's trying to injure themselves. That's the only person that doesn't get along with you. I mean, if I every time put your needs as more important than my needs, which is commanded in Scripture, which is impossible without the indwelling Holy Spirit, then I get along with all of you. But part of why we have conflict is that we're selfish. Secondly, we put expectations on others to fix us. And when they don't, we're frustrated. Sometimes we pay people to do this. We pay people good money to listen to us like our friends should be doing. And after six-week session, they've given us some good pointers They've got degrees on the wall. They may have helped us some, but they haven't fixed us. We're still doing the same destructive things that we've always done. And we get frustrated at that. And what do we do? We, we, we put it on another person. Sometimes we just blame other people for our problems. You ever have this thought? My life would be so good if not for my boss. And my life would be so good if not for this one relationship within our family network. I'm glad I don't have to see him very often, but if that person weren't there, man, we'd have just a great family. And my life would be so good except for, and then we put someone's name in there. And sometimes we, we do that. We don't, we're far too sophisticated to say these things, but we think these things. And this is part of why it's hard to get along. I want to close with this. In thinking about community groups, I want to give you a couple of things that they aren't and then a couple of things that they are. Community groups are not a quick fix in your battle against temptation. Sometimes people are struggling with sin, and they say, man, I just need some accountability. No, you don't. Accountability helps. Accountability is really important, but that doesn't fix you. You will still battle against the flesh. What you need from that is what? A hero, a savior, one that's greater than you that can pull you out of that. Who's that? The only one that fits that bill is Jesus, not your community group leader, not your pastor, not your counselor, your shrink, your therapist or your guru from the East. It's only Jesus. That's what you need. So it's not a quick fix for our battle against temptation. That battle will continue to rage, as far as I know, till the day we die. I love talking to older Christians who are on the process of finishing well. They're a dying breed. That's a weird pun. But it's true. Um, There aren't that many. You look in the scriptures too. There just aren't that many that finish the race well. I praise God for our church having people that are much older than I am. And as Christians, I like to talk to people who've been down the road further than me and to hear them say, it's a little discouraging, but it's an eye-opening thing. Man, the battle doesn't stop. You know, is there going to come a day where I stop you know, having this? No, it's not. It's there. So that battle's going to rage for the rest of our lives. 
and a community group isn't a quick fix for that. Here's another thing that community groups aren't. They're not a quick fix to your feelings of isolation. Sometimes people are disillusioned to say this, I feel lonely, and so I'm going to get into a church, and I'm going to get into a good community group. And then what happens is this, you get into that community group, and you're around other people who may be trying to use one another in that same way, and what happens? Your, your second state, your latter state, is worse than the first one. Because there's potential that there really is help there, but, it, but it's not being done in a God-centered, God-honoring way. Instead, it's very me-focused. It's back to being selfish. And so then you say, well, I've tried the church. I've tried community groups. That's not where it's at. And you're all the more depressed and all the, wor- all the more struggling and frustrated that you're isolated. It only makes things worse if you think a community group is going to cure your loneliness. Finally, community groups aren't a quick fix in your propensity toward the self. Here's what's possible. All of us who are selfish and have a propensity toward my needs and my prayer requests and you helping me show scripture on my circumstances, come to community group on Thursday night. Now, how does that look if we all sit in a circle and do that? Well, what it could end up doing is this. I will sit and listen patiently to you and give feedback to you because I'm longing for you to do that in return to me. It's the one place in my week where people will actually stop, really look me in the eye, and genuinely listen to me without interrupting me. That's a powerful thing, but that doesn't go far enough for a biblically functioning small group in my mind. Because what that could lead to is this. The same eight people coming together week after week after week after week after week after week. And all it is is a bunch of individuals maybe who have a propensity towards self, who in a way, in a weird way, are kind of using one another just to, to hear one another out and not ever grow in that. Now, this is a, a fine line, but, but here's, here's the picture I want to show you. If we as a church gathered about 100 people, which before we went to two services, that's right around where we're at. 100 people could gather together and for the rest of our days minister to one another, celebrate each other's birthdays, go to each other's funerals, vacation together, hang out with one another, worship together, right? And we could go through our lives and eventually we would all get old and we would all die and this church would die. It takes absolute intentionality to take a circle of people who are all focused inward and intentionally say, you know what, part of why we exist as a church is for people who aren't members yet. That's a part of our calling. Follow me and what? I will make you fishers of men. That was Jesus' call. So if we're not intentional about it, we could just be the little holy huddle, the little group of friends. All we are is a clique with a Christian name attached to it, right? And we get to know each other really well, and there's a lot of benefit to that. But it's not what we're called to as Christians. All right, I wrap up with this. Community groups are a great way to take a step toward really being involved in another person's life. By prayer, by celebration, by just communication, by just faithfully showing up week after week to community group, you begin to say, out of obedience to God the Father, I'm going to begin to take an intentional investment in the lives of other people. Some of you are involved in ministry. And in ministry, you have meetings with your ministry team. 
And just doing that keeps you connected. It forces decisions on the table where you have to think through and wrestle through differences. And you keep coming back to the scripture and say, yeah, but we're, we're leaving this part out. And the person goes, yeah, but I think we need to push over here. Part of being in a ministry is that you just, you, you just keep showing up to these meetings. And by, and by making an intentional investment and just saying, I'm just going to show up and continue to be involved, God begins to use that. Community groups are modeled in the scriptures. When you read the scriptures, you see that the church never lost coming together exactly as we're doing right now. They gathered for worship, they gathered for teaching, but they also met house to house. They were constantly in one another's homes. On the way, remember Jesus would talk all the time, spiritual matters on the way. So that means in the car, at the grocery store, at birthday parties. doesn't mean you need to whip out a Bible study every time at every part of the day. But you're praying without ceasing. You're living your life in such a way that even when you go horseback riding with someone from the church, you know what Chris and I talked about much of the day yesterday? It was awesome. As my daughter and her friend were off horseback riding, we sat there and discussed Old Testament theology. And it wasn't the pastor that brought it up. It was Chris. We were just in dialogue. He reads his Bible every day. We had lots to talk about. It was really encouraging. Community groups um, are dependent on the participants for their success or failure. Is leadership important in a church and in a community group? Absolutely. We treat our community groups like, our, our community group leaders like under shepherds. Don't just come and teach a few truths at Bible study. Really take ownership. Shepherd these people. Love these people. Lay your life down for these people. But here's the bottom line. Your community group is essentially a reflection of you. So when you come and say, our community group stinks, we're super critical, and we always bash the leader, and we're just flapping our lips without doing anything. I mean, a biblical response might be for the leader to just go, I've got a mirror. Would you hold this? You know, and just let the person look at themselves. Because what they're saying is exactly what they're doing. So, so it is with our church. So again, Scripture gives clear indication of what, sh- what a qualified leader should be and all of that. But, but your community group is largely dependent on how you are in that community group. So when you go from group to group to group and say, man, no one's open. No one shares anything of real value. We're always just this, this deep. My first question would be, what, what, what have you shared? Because I know this, openness breeds openness. Humility and just sharing your sin and saying, I'm a, I'm a rotten sinner and I need your guys' prayer to keep me from, from giving into this temptation. People are like, it's safe to say that in this room? That's me. I thought we just gave prayer requests about my grandma or something. I didn't know we were supposed to do that. And all of a sudden, man, the floodgates open, and we, we begin to walk in life with one another. Community groups are a fantastic place to push back on ideas that you are discovering that are new or ideas that you thought were true in this way because you were always taught this, but then, gosh, something that was, was preached on Sunday, uh, that seems to go against that. What does the Bible have to say about that? It's a great place to push back on that. We're not a church that says you just... Listen and obey to the intellectually elite. None of you are thinking I'm that. But whatever the person up here tells you, and then you're just held captive to however I interpret the scriptures. You know how that's how much of church history was? That's part of the Reformation. God said, no, it's a priesthood of all believers. You all have a direct line to God. There's one mediator between God and man. It's Jesus Christ. So if you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. You interpret the word. You know what's awesome about our men's group on Thursday nights? We have some wacky theological ideas that get tossed out on Thursday nights sometimes. We do. And I would say, from the scriptures, I'd say, I don't know if that's really in there. I think I saw that in the Matrix once. Like, I think that's an idea, but I'm not sure it's a biblical idea. But you know what's really cool? 
People on Thursday nights in our men's group, they have every freedom to express doubt. They have every freedom to push back and go, wait a minute, what you just said, is that really true? I mean, we say that, but is that really true? And it's a great idea to sharpen and hone and say, well, let's look, how does the Scripture teach us? What does it say? And then we keep coming back to that, and then we grow. Band, why don't you come on up? Finally, community groups are a great place to practically live out the obedience found in Scripture with all the one another's. And I'm not going to beat these to death. I've mentioned them in the past. Every time you see one another, very hard to do by yourself. Very difficult. So a practical way to live that out is to say, I'm going to join a community group. I'm going to commit myself to being a part and live out my Christian walk in this place. I'm putting my flag down. Here's the questions that you're going to ask as a community group this week. Am I in proximity of other Christians or in community with them? Proximity or community, there's a big difference. Secondly, community requires commitment. What is stopping me from committing to be with other people? Maybe it's something in the past. Maybe it's a lie that you believe. Maybe it's fear. I don't know what it is, but it really does require commitment to be in community, whether you're in a, in a marriage relationship, in a family relationship, or in a church relationship. Finally, which word would you use to describe your relationship to the church? Do you love the church? Do you use the church? Are you indifferent to the church? Maybe there are some other adjectives that you can discuss as a community group. I thank you for the conviction of the Holy Spirit right now who's falling heavy on people to not just go through a religious ceremony, to not just wander through the date meaningless, but to use the time to get their relationship right with you. Father, for those who are used to sitting on the sidelines and just kind of taking from the church, as scary and as risky as it is, out of obedience to you and out of trusting that what Dad says is best for us, Would you help them to plug in here? God, for community group leaders in this service and in the previous service, would you guard their lives, God? Would you guard their ministry as they seek to get underneath and get low as leaders and wash people's feet the way that you washed your disciples' feet? We celebrate and thank you for the body and the blood of you, Jesus, that was broken and poured out intentionally for us As we eat and drink today, we're proclaiming that you won't leave us as orphans, but that you're coming again one day. In Jesus' name we pray.